So tell me, doctor, exactly what causes mental illness? The global answer right now is no one knows. We know all of those risk factors, or we know those factors seem to play a role, but nobody can figure it out. It's way too complicated. You know, the brain is super complicated, and nobody can put it all together. We just don't know right now. And what I'm saying, what I'm arguing, is I'm taking all of that evidence, decades and decades of clinical, genetic, neuroscience, and metabolic research, I'm taking all of it, and I'm looking at it from a much higher level, and I'm seeing, does all of this fit together somehow? Like, this is all part of a big puzzle. Does it fit together? Can we somehow piece it together and make sense of it? I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and today's guest is Dr. Christopher Palmer. Dr. Palmer is a Harvard psychiatrist and researcher working at the interface of metabolism and mental health. He is the director of the Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Education at McLean Hospital and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. For more than two decades, he has held leadership roles in psychiatric education at Harvard, McLean Hospital, and nationally. He spent more than 15 years conducting neuroscience research in the areas of substance use and sleep disorders. Most recently, he has developed the first comprehensive theory of what causes mental illness, integrating biological, psychological, and social research into one unifying theory, the brain energy theory of mental illness. Today on the podcast, we discuss Dr. Palmer's revolutionary new approach to understanding and treating mental health conditions such as anxiety, depression, and more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Christopher Palmer to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Palmer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you. Um, like I was telling you before we recorded, I really enjoyed your book. I love how you are taking this, like not really new approach, but an approach that's not talked about enough to combat mental illness. And that's just talking about like a lot of the things that like don't get talked about and the importance of lifestyle and nutrition and looking at things in more of like a nuanced way. And I think a good place for us to start is one of the things you talk about is that we have to understand the difference between a mental state and a mental disorder. And a lot of times we get this wrong. So if you could explain the difference between the two, I think people would really appreciate that. Yeah, it's a great place to start. So, you know, right now, psychiatric diagnoses are based on DSM. And DSM says, for example... If you have five out of the nine symptoms of major depression for two weeks or longer, that you have a brain disorder, and that that brain disorder is called major depressive disorder. And whether you've had those symptoms for two and a half weeks or whether you've had those symptoms for 50 years continuously, we don't distinguish. And I actually think that is completely wrong. And debates about this have 
been going on in the mental health field for centuries, actually, and certainly recent decades. So at the end of the day, it all comes down to distinguishing between what is normal and what is a mental disorder or a brain disorder. And right now, DSM does not at all even try to distinguish those things. So let me give you a clear example. If there is this guy and he's got a wife and two kids, and they are killed tragically in an automobile accident, that man has 13 days to be depressed. That's it. 13. No more. If he is still depressed, and we're talking serious depression, he's like having trouble getting out of bed. He might even be thinking about suicide. He might, even if he's not thinking about suicide, he may have trouble going to work. He may be crying all the time. He's got 13 days to do that. And if he's still doing it at day 14, then it doesn't even have to be severe. It could be mild or moderate at day 14. The American Psychiatric Association says he now has a brain disorder called major depressive disorder. And a lot of people think and assume that that is due to a serotonin imbalance in his brain. And the best treatment for that is to give him a drug that will balance his serotonin levels. Any human being with common sense knows that is ridiculous. That man is allowed to grieve for longer than 13 days before we say he's got a brain disorder. But unfortunately, again, our diagnostic criteria says otherwise. Now, I want to compare that, though, to somebody who does have a brain disorder, somebody who has crippling depression, suicidal thoughts, plus or minus the suicidal thoughts. You can take them or leave them even. Crippling depression. And they will say, I don't know why I'm depressed. I have no good reason to be depressed. My life is actually pretty decent. I've got a a good family. I've, I've got a good job. Things are fine in my life. But I am just so miserable. And I can't pull myself out of it. No matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I just cannot feel okay. I don't know what's wrong with me. And let's say that's been going on for months or years. I would argue that person does have a brain disorder. And I think it's really critical that we distinguish those two things. Because one is a normal reaction to adversity. And the treatment for that is common sense human compassion. That man needs help. He needs support. He needs love. He needs all of that. But compassion and support aren't going to help the person with the brain disorder. The person with a brain disorder has a brain region that is malfunctioning, that is causing depression for no good reason, and that person needs a different approach. Yeah, I think it's so important, like you said, to distinguish between the two. And there's a difference, for instance, between somebody who just happens to be anxious for you know a week or two versus somebody who has you know what they would call, I guess, generalized anxiety disorder. I think a lot of people, though, they have like this long term like medium amount of depression or anxiety where the person, maybe they went through a breakup like six months ago, nine months ago, maybe they're having trouble in their job, maybe their outlook on life is just, you know, it's a little bit doom and gloom. And maybe they're just in a longer state of depression, but maybe they're not as far gone, maybe they're not as far as to having to go on some sort of medication like what would advice would you have for somebody who's like in the state like that where they just haven't been feeling well for a long period of time nothing incredibly traumatic happened but they're just their outlook on life is definitely a little jaded 
So for better or worse, there are lots of people exactly like that, especially since the pandemic. The rates of that, whether we call that mild depression or whether we call that burnout or whether we, whatever label we use to describe that, there are lots of human beings on the planet right now who are experiencing exactly those symptoms. And I would, I imagine we're going to get to this, but I am actually proposing a radically new way to think about mental health. I believe, based on decades of science and putting it all together in one clear, coherent way, that that person is actually having a metabolic problem in their brain. And what that means is that their brain isn't working properly or it's not firing on all cylinders because of a metabolic problem. And so I would actually want to try to first understand why that might be. And I would want to do some common sense assessments of their lifestyle. I would want to think about and look at their diet, whether they exercise, how their sleep is, whether they're super stressed, you know, whether they can calm down or practice stress reduction techniques. But, you know, if all of those things, you know, if somebody checks the boxes and says, no, all of those things are perfect, everything's good, I, I'm just worn down, I don't know why, I would actually start, want, as a physician, I would want to start to look at some possible medical causes. I'd want to look for like a thyroid hormone deficiency or a vitamin deficiency or an autoimmune disorder that might be going on, something like that. And then if those things all check off, and I'm, I'm going to just say, say right here, I think there is a 95% chance that I will have found something wrong <laughs> already, probably with lifestyle or with one of these other factors. If none of them check off, then I might consider, you know, standard psychiatric treatments. I might consider an antidepressant. I might consider psychotherapy. Or I might consider some more novel metabolic interventions, such as dietary interventions or a more rigorous exercise program or something else. Right. And I want to get into like the metabolic part because like the the topic of this is fascinating to me because this also involves like the neurotransmitters, which are often, you know, talked about when it comes to mental health. But I guess over the years we've heard that like things like genetics, things like trauma, whether it's little T or big T, lifestyle, you know, like a relationship or other things that can contribute and cause, you know, mental illness in people. Like, what are your thoughts on all of that as it relates to you believing it's a metabolic issue? You know, you're absolutely right. So for a long time, you know, for over many years now, we have accumulated numerous lines of evidence to suggest that everything you just said is true, that neurotransmitters seem to somehow be off or, or at least giving medications that impact neurotransmitters can result in benefits for some people with mental disorders. So that makes people think, well, somehow maybe neurotransmitters are involved. But we know hormonal imbalances can be involved. Inflammation can be involved, but as you said, trauma, big T or little t can be involved, stress, bullying and teasing, adverse childhood experiences, all of these things can play a role. But when you ask any of the leading psychiatrists or neuroscientists, so tell me, doctor, exactly what causes mental illness? The global answer right now is no one knows. We know all of those risk factors or we know those factors seem to play a role, 
but nobody can figure it out. It's way too complicated. You know, the brain is super complicated and nobody can put it all together. We just don't know right now. And what I'm saying, what I'm arguing is I'm taking all of that evidence, decades and decades of clinical, genetic, neuroscience, and metabolic research. I'm taking all of it, and I'm looking at it from a much higher level, and I'm seeing, does all of this fit together somehow? Like, this is all part of a big puzzle. Does it fit together? Can we somehow piece it together and make sense of it? And what I am arguing is that day has finally come. Yes, we can piece it together, and we can make sense of it. And the nutshell answer is that mental disorders are metabolic disorders. And in order to understand what that means, you have to understand these tiny things in our cells called mitochondria. And once you understand the science of metabolism and mitochondria, you can begin to understand why neurotransmitters might become imbalanced, why hormones might become imbalanced, cortisol levels or others estrogen, testosterone, and how those hormones can play a role in mental illness in some people. But you also, shockingly, can piece together trauma, big T or little t, childhood adverse experiences, stress, sleep, substance use, all of it. Every single last piece of it fits together when you understand the big picture of metabolism and mitochondria. So diving into the metabolism and mitochondria idea, I guess just from from a novice perspective, if you could explain like what that truly means, then also like, you know, what comes first? Do you think that people are just born metabolically unhealthy and then that leads to some of these mental illnesses, mental disorders that we're talking about? Or does somebody experience like trauma or an adverse childhood experience and then that messes with the way we metabolize things in our brains? So there's a lot to unpack there. Let me take the big picture, like what is metabolism, and maybe start there. So the what is metabolism, a lot of people have heard the word metabolism, and they usually think about it as burning calories. Metabolism is burning calories, and it, you know, it's all related to your weight. People who have a good metabolism or a fast metabolism are skinny, and they're athletic usually. And people who have a slow metabolism, those are the people who gain weight and they're barely eating anything and they've got a slow metabolism and they have no energy and they're getting fat. Well, those things are true. Metabolism does relate to weight and it does relate to the amount of energy or athletic ability people have. But I'm here to tell you metabolism is way, way more than that. Metabolism is actually fundamental to the function of every cell in the human body. And at the end of the day, it is really a fundamental part of the definition of a living organism. So, you know, when organisms stop kind of engaging in what we call metabolism, they die. So easy examples are like, you know, somebody suffocates you, that means you don't have oxygen. Oxygen is required for one and only one thing, metabolism. And if you don't have oxygen, you die. That's how critical metabolism is to the function and structure of cells. So instead of death, though, sometimes cells can have slightly reduced metabolism. They can have problems with metabolism. Instead of producing 100% energy for the cell, they're maybe producing 70%
of the energy that that cell really needs. And what that means is that that cell is still alive, but it means that it starts to struggle and it starts to malfunction. And so that's kind of a broad, high-level overview of metabolism. So like what comes first is the reason that you're arguing that it's a metabolic thing because you believe that people are just born metabolically unhealthy in their brain? Or do you think like some of these things that are risk factors for mental illness, like trauma, lifestyle, being bullied, or is that impacting how our brain metabolizes things? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Organifi. As you know, Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers that contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving. Recently, I have been loving the refreshing taste of the new Organifi green juice, Crisp Apple. That's right, Crisp Apple. It comes with all the benefits you've come to love in the classic green juice with a new juicy twist. Enjoy the same fan-favorite nourishing ingredients such as ashwagandha, moringa, spirulina, and chlorella, designed to hydrate, energize, and support cortisol balance. The new green juice, Crisp Apple, is made with organic, wholesome, hand-picked apples. It tastes like a fresh, juicy slice in every sip, making it the first of its kind the whole family will absolutely love. It's only available for a limited time, so make sure to stock up now and take advantage of this nourishing green juice that tastes absolutely divine. So go to www.organifi.com backslash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com backslash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off any item. Now back to the show. It is all of it, actually. But here's the best news of this theory. Unlike the genetic theory of mental illness, which says that, well, if you have a family history of depression, then that means you inherited bad genes, and it means you're going to be depressed. And if you start getting depressed, then, well, you're screwed now because you're just going to, you're just probably going to be depressed. It runs in your family. You're just going to have to take pills or do psychotherapy. And we know from treatment studies, those can work for some people, and that's great. But we also know from those same treatment studies, they fail to work for the majority of people who get those treatments. Way more than 50% do not get better using those treatments. So our field basically tells people, well, you're just kind of screwed. It runs in your family, so it must be in your genes. What I'm here to say is that that is actually wrong. It does not run in the genes, even though you can inherit and a tendency toward mental disorders. But what I'm arguing is that it's metabolic. And when people understand what that means, it, metabolism is primarily influenced by the environment. The good news in that is that we can change the environment. So the environment is written large. It includes diet and exercise and sleep but it includes psychological, social environment, so stress, trauma, bullying, and teasing. It includes substance use. It includes all of those things. All of those things are part of the environment, and they all have a direct impact on metabolism and mitochondria. And the hopeful aspect of it is that it means that people who have mental illness, and I mean all of them, whether we're talking depression, anxiety, or whether we're going to bipolar disorder or even schizophrenia, what I'm saying is that all of those people, if they have a true disorder, 
which I separate from just, you know, you're, you're getting bullied and teased, and so of course you're anxious. If they have a true disorder, meaning they're having symptoms for no good reason, or the symptoms are way excessive and, and prolonged, that, that means that their brain is metabolically malfunctioning, and that we can actually do something today based on current science and knowledge. We can do things today to help people recover. And those things are actually fairly simple and straightforward, usually lifestyle interventions. So diving into that, let's just take the person, the example of that we were talking about before, who's just been having this low level of depression or anxiety, you know, throughout this year, and they're just looking to change things up. Maybe they are thinking about taking medication. Maybe they are on medication, but they're just trying to make sure that they're checking all the boxes to make sure they're doing the, the best that they can to combat this. What are some of the things that can help them, like you just said, that are pretty straightforward and that can be done, you know, fairly efficiently? So the great news is that I had somebody exactly like that read my book probably two months ago. And he didn't ask me for help. He just read the book. And based on the book, he implemented the following strategies. He had already been practicing mindfulness and meditation and found them somewhat helpful. But he was actually at the point where he was just about to go on medication because he was he had just low-grade chronic anxiety for no good reason. He knew that it was a problem. A problem. After reading the book, he basically cleaned up his diet which means he got rid of a lot of junk food and he lowered the total carbohydrates that he was eating. He prioritized sleep more and he made a point to try to get some exposure to bright light in the morning, whether that was going outside and taking a walk and just letting the sun shine on his face or whether it was just exposing himself to some bright light in the morning. People sometimes even get bright light lamps that they can use. He did those three things and he said... It kind of transformed my life. There was no way I would go on medication now. Like it was so profound and dramatic, the difference that it made. He had been battling that for years, for years. He, he really was holding out. He had engaged in years of psychotherapy and again said it was kind of helpful, but it wasn't doing it. It just wasn't doing it. So he's practicing psychotherapy, meditating. It's just not cutting it. He's ready to pull the, you know, plug on. I'm going to you know, bite the bullet and take meds. And just from three simple lifestyle interventions, he feels like a new person. And what I'm convinced of is that that could be so many other people. One of the biggest things about this theory that I just want to ex help people understand so that people really kind of understand the gravity of what we're talking about. Mental disorders are skyrocketing in prevalence, for those of you who don't know, especially in youth. Rates of depression, anxiety, but also bipolar disorder, also autism spectrum disorder. Autism rates have tripled in the last 20 years. Rates of bipolar disorder have over doubled in the last 10 years. Rates of depression and anxiety are through the roof. ADHD is skyrocketing. All of it, across the board, mental disorders are skyrocketing. And everybody's scratching their heads trying to figure out what the hell's going on here. Is everybody just stressed? Is it social media? What's going on here? I want to point out a simple, simple kind of observation. Rates of obesity and diabetes are skyrocketing in our population too. And this is not about fat shaming and it's not about blame. What I'm going to argue, what I'm arguing is that obesity and diabetes are symptoms of metabolic problems. They are symptoms. They are not 
the root cause. They are symptoms of a metabolic problem, and so are mental disorders. So at the same time that rates of obesity and diabetes are skyrocketing, so too are the rates of mental disorders across the board. And we can't turn a blind eye to this anymore. Right. And so diving into what you just said, like the parallel that exists between the rise in in mental illness and the rise in obesity and people that, and the unhealthiness that exists in our country, do you think that part of it is that people are using like food as a way to cope with stress and manage pain and that people, they just feel demotivated or hopeless as far as their ability to you know, change whatever lifestyle that they're currently living? Or do you believe that whatever's happening metabolically in the brain is what's preventing them from like becoming healthier? The real answer, and I'm sorry for people who like simple answers, the real answer is it is a really complicated issue. And it is obviously, it is on the minds of a lot of experts and governments and people um, like what a, like they look around the world and they're like, what the hell is happening here? Right. Like yeah. <laughs> everyone, everyone is gaining weight and getting diabetic and mental disorders are skyrocketing. What the hell's going on here? And what I am here to say, again, obesity is a symptom. So could it be as simple as what you described? People are mentally ill, meaning they are stressed depressed, anxious, for no good reason, and that drives them to overeat, well, we have a lot of lines of evidence that, yes, that part of the story is true at least some of the time. But what I'm also here to say is that it can go the other way around, is that if you are eating foods that are bad for your metabolism. And that's the way I want to say it. I don't want to say you're overeating. I want to say you're eating foods or you're being exposed to environmental toxins, like all the microplastics and chemicals in the environment. You're being exposed to something that's actually poisoning your metabolism. Those metabolic toxins will make you more likely to become depressed, anxious, bipolar, or whatever. And at the same time, those metabolically toxic substances will also make you more likely to overeat and or they just ruin your metabolism. So even if you're not overeating, even if you're eating exactly the same number of calories as the skinny person next to you, your metabolism is plummeting and that means you are gaining massive amounts of weight compared to that person because you're not burning off those calories in the same way that the metabolically healthy person is burning calories. How do you like decipher between like which is the cause and what's not? Like let's just say that there's a lot of people that are exposed to the same environmental toxins and and somebody, you know, might become overweight and somebody might not become overweight. Like how do you kind of explain that? So the easiest explanation for that is that for better or worse, every human is different. And it starts from your genetics. And yes, your genetics are going to play some role. Much more important than genetics is actually these epigenetic mechanisms of inheritance. And what that means is that when you're actually a fetus growing up inside your mother's womb, your mother is exposing you to all the food she's eating, 
But she's also exposing you to any substances that she's using. So if she's drinking alcohol or smoking cigarettes, you're getting exposed to that. And we all know that's probably bad for you. But you're also getting exposed to any of these environmental toxins at the same time. So you're getting exposed to all of these things. And that is actually programming you as a living organism. And it's programming your metabolism. And we know that you know different womb environments, whether it's a hormonal issue, whether it's a weight issue. So if your mom is overweight or obese when she's having you, that is setting you up for a problem in life. It's not your fault. You can't control who your mom is and what womb environment you're growing up in. And she couldn't either. So I'm not looking to blame mom. She couldn't control her circumstances either. So this isn't about blaming people. It's not about shaming people. It's about understanding the detailed science. Because once we understand the detailed science to get to your practical question, then what the hell do we do about this? Then what the hell do we do about this is we look to improve metabolism in human beings. And there are some easy, straightforward ways to do that. Diet, exercise, good sleep, stress reduction, eliminating harmful substances. I'll start with the obvious easy ones. And I'm sorry if I'm raining on any of your parades. This includes smoking cigarettes. I'm sorry. It includes vaping. It also includes alcohol use. Yes, all alcohol use. You don't get two drinks a day. That Even that is bad for your brain. We know that now with certainty. Two drinks a day, really bad for your brain. And it includes marijuana. I know everybody loves marijuana and it's legal and everybody's using it and it's the greatest thing in the world, but it is really harmful to brain and brain metabolism. And so like taking this one step further, I know I've heard you talk about so far, like the importance of things that we talk about a lot on the show, optimizing sleep, making sure you're eating well, making sure you're exercising, you know, making sure you're ingesting dangerous substances, but from a neurotransmitter perspective, like I just want to take this more from like a baseline level. Like I think people, when they think of neurotransmitters, they might begin to understand a little bit more like how they might play a role in things like anxiety and depression. What are some things that you've seen that work either through human outcome data or just through your own practice as far as people optimizing their dopamine and serotonin levels, you know, naturally so they can continue on the path of optimizing their mental health? The solutions come back to all of those common sense solutions that I just described, actually. And if people don't understand that or believe that, again, once you understand the science of metabolism and mitochondria, you understand that they are directly responsible. Mitochondria in particular are directly responsible for the production of serotonin and dopamine but they're also directly responsible for the regulation of those hormones and the release of those hormones from your neurons in your brain. And what that means is that if your mitochondria are dysfunctional or sluggish or just there's something wrong with them, you either don't have enough of them in your cells or they're dysfunctional somehow, it means that those neurotransmitters may become imbalanced or dysfunctional. And there are some clear, straightforward ways to improve mitochondrial function and improve mitochondrial health. Most of the strategies that we've identified, diet, exercise, sleep, all of those things play a role. Now, I know a lot of 
a lot of your listeners are probably thinking, but that's crap. You're just saying like stuff that we've heard a million times and it doesn't work. And it's certainly not going to work for somebody with a serious mental illness. Is it okay if I share a story to just drill this home? Would that be? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Share whatever you want. Awesome. So let me, because a lot of people think I'm just like, you know, there are a lot of people out there like, oh, if everybody just eats a healthy diet, they'll have a healthy brain. And the reality is that's not true. Eating a healthy diet does not automatically give you a healthy brain. However, there are dietary strategies that can profoundly impact your brain metabolism and restore your brain health. And one particular diet that I am a particular expert in is the ketogenic diet. And so I will tell you the story of a woman who had schizophrenia. Like, let's go all the way to a serious, chronic, supposedly lifelong brain disorder that ruins people's lives, schizophrenia. So this is the story of a woman. Her name is Doris. She had a horrible childhood, lots of trauma and abuse, had lots of PTSD and depression and everything else. By the time she was 17, she developed schizophrenia, hallucinations and delusions every day. Over the ensuing decades, she tried numerous antipsychotics and mood stabilizers, but they did not stop her symptoms. They did make her gain a massive amount of weight, though. Between the ages of 68 and 70, she tried to kill herself at least six times. She was miserable. She hated her life. She hated her existence. She hated everything. She just wanted to be dead. At the age of 70, she was referred to a weight loss clinic at Duke, where they were using the ketogenic diet. And for whatever reason, she decided to give it a try. Within two weeks, not only did she start losing weight, but she began to notice dramatic and remarkable reductions in her auditory hallucinations. Within months, all of her symptoms of schizophrenia were in full and complete remission. Within six months, she was off all her psychiatric medications and stayed in full and complete remission. She lived for another 15 years, symptom-free, medication-free, no more suicide attempts, no more mental health professionals, no more psychiatric hospitalizations. As anyone knows, That doesn't happen in psychiatry today, even with the best medications or electroconvulsive therapy or anything else we have to offer. That does not happen. And the metabolic theory of mental illness says it is a new day in the mental health field. Whether you have mild depression and burnout or whether you have a severe, chronic, horrible disorder like schizophrenia, it is a new day in the mental health field. Well, first of all, I think thanks for sharing that, and it's 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 amazing to hear that you know using like lifestyle interventions can can help somebody like that. And I think like we've kind of said throughout the conversation, you know, you have to find what works for you. And like, there's some interventions that work for some, and there's some that don't work for others. And you just really have to hone in on what works for you. With regards to what you shared about her, do you think it was specifically like what specifically was it about the ketogenic diet versus the fact that she just lost a bunch of weight and that that improved her metabolic health. How do you know whether it was the ketogenic diet versus just losing the weight loss that helped? It's a great question. We have lots of studies of trying to help people with schizophrenia and other chronic serious mental disorders lose weight. And some of those studies have been effective. They've helped people lose weight, but they have not resulted in anything at all like those improvements that Doris experienced. For the listeners who don't know this, the ketogen, you know, a lot of people think of the ketogenic diet as a fad diet or a dangerous diet or, you know, that diet where everybody eats bacon and that's all they eat. It's bacon all day. I mean, it's clearly not healthy and everybody's going to die of heart attacks. But 
The reality is that the ketogenic diet was actually developed 100 years ago by a physician for one and only one purpose, and that was to stop seizures. So the ketogenic diet is a 100-year-old evidence-based treatment for seizures. And it turns out that we use seizure treatments in psychiatry all the time. Things like Depakote, Lamictal, Neurontin or Gabapentin, Valium, Clonopin, Xanax, all of those are seizure treatments. But you probably all know that those names because of their use in the mental health field. And so in many ways, this diet is an evidence-based seizure treatment, and we're using it in the same way that we would use those types of pills. And so there's a tremendous amount of detailed neuroscience that we know about it. There are lots of ways to understand how that diet is very different than just eating a quote-unquote healthy diet. This isn't go out and eat a Mediterranean diet and your schizophrenia will go away. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is that if you understand the science of metabolism and mitochondria, you can use a specific dietary intervention like the ketogenic diet to improve metabolism, to restore brain health, to change people's lives. It's more than just everybody eat a Mediterranean diet and we'll all be healthy and won't that be great. That's not what I'm saying because that is blatantly not true. Right. And obviously you got to whatever, if you're in a situation where you have something like, you know, schizophrenia or epilepsy, obviously it seems like want to be doing this in in a medical setting and having guidance from a clinician. But as far as the ketogenic diet, like you mentioned, like you think people just say to eat, you know, a bunch of bacon or a bunch of like, you know, fat, and then it's going to give you a heart attack. Like what's the healthy way in your opinion to do a ketogenic diet so that you're not putting yourself at risk for heart disease or cardiovascular disease, but you're also able to optimize your brain health? Tons of versions of a ketogenic diet. So you will meet people who say, I just eat bacon all day and that's my form of the ketogenic diet. And, you know, if they're doing well on it and their health is improving and all of their risk factors for heart attacks are improving, God love them and good for them. And that's great. And I'm not going to stand in their way. But you can actually do a vegan version of the ketogenic diet or a vegetarian version of it. You can have lots of salads and vegetables, low-carbohydrate vegetables, but you're going to have a lot of olive oil, avocados, maybe nuts, other foods that are very high in fat. So nuts, avocados, you know, olive oil, coconut oil, all of those are high in fat and can produce a state of ketosis in people. So you can really modify the diet in ways that are palatable to you, that, you know, conform with your culture, with your upbringing, with the types of foods that you like. You can get savory foods, you can get sweet foods, you can make fat bombs, you can have like keto ice cream or keto shakes or mousse. I mean, you can keto snacks. And I mean, there are all sorts of things that people can make. And obviously, you do want to pay attention to your overall health and your overall health markers. So I definitely want to, I'm always paying attention to people's blood pressure and blood glucose and their lipid levels, triglycerides, HDL cholesterol, and LDL cholesterol. I'm paying attention to all of it and making sure that we're moving in the right direction when we use this intervention. Yeah, I think it's really important, like you said, to do what works for you and then also pay attention to how it's impacting your overall health. And that's why I think it's important to work with like a clinician and make sure it seems like to get, you know, labs done fairly consistently so that, you know, while you're 
you can see the increase in, in brain function and brain health. You're also able to see where you're at from like a cardiovascular standpoint as well. I want to talk about the nervous system and how metabolic health and mental illness and all that comes together. Because from my own experience, I'm just speaking for myself, I've had a dysregulated nervous system off and on for most of my life due to you know, stuff that happened in childhood. I mean, I was a drug addict for a while. I'd go on and on with, with my story, but I want to kind of save that. But just that had a dysregulated nervous system. And because of that, has that's contributed to my inability to manage anxiety, manage depression, and and that sort of thing. And I think that's pretty common with people that their nervous systems are out of whack and therefore they're having symptoms of mental illness. What are your thoughts on that? And then how do you think things like metabolic health, mitochondria, how does that all tie together? It ties perfectly together. And I think you're absolutely right. So people can develop a dysregulated nervous system. And what that means is that your brain is not functioning optimally. And usually what people notice are brain functions that are either overactive or intrusive. So that could be anxiety symptoms or panic attacks or OCD symptoms or even thoughts of depression or suicide, that if those are occurring for no reason, out of the blue, that represents a dysregulation of those brain regions. Other people can experience a dysregulation of brain regions and that the brain functions that they should be able to do are underactive or not very strong. And so that can be something like paying attention or concentrating. And if you can't do that, you might get diagnosed with depression or ADHD, for example. And both of those represent, at the end of the day, both of those represent metabolically compromised brain cells or brain networks. There is no other way to put the science together other than that. They are metabolically compromised brain regions and brain networks. And the good news is that we can help those brain regions heal through lifestyle factors. If people aren't quite believing this, because I know it's radical and it sounds like, you know, wow, that's it sounds too, too good to be true or too much or whatever. Let me use the concrete example of somebody who has all of the metabolic disorders. So this person is obese, diabetic, and developing heart symptoms. They're getting chest pains. That person has a metabolic problem. The medical field is clear on that. That is what unifies those three disorders, obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. They're metabolic problems. And those metabolic problems result in actually plaques developing in your arteries. It also results in cells like in your pancreas that produce insulin, maybe not functioning properly. It can also result in nerve problems like pain, nerve neuropathy. It can result in higher rates of infections. It can result in depression. Those are all risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. So when you look at the details of, well, why would one person with all those start getting Alzheimer's disease? Or why would somebody have neuropathy? Or why would have somebody have heart attacks or strokes? It can get complicated and you can get lost in the complications and the science of well, why would one person have this or one person. But if you take a step back and say, bottom line is this person is overweight, diabetic, and developing heart symptoms, can we do something for this person? 
I think everybody knows the answer is yes, unequivocally we can do something for this person. Let's look at your diet. Let's get you exercising. Let's look at your stress levels. Let's make sure you're sleeping well. Lay off the drugs and alcohol. Clean up your lifestyle and that will probably clean up your body. And guess what? All of those things can be reversed. That person can lose weight and no longer be obese. That person can get rid of their diabetes. That person can get rid of their heart symptoms and you are having profound effects on their body and brain when you're doing that. And guess what? At the end of the day, what I'm saying is let's not forget the brain, folks, when we look at that whole cascade of events, because the brain is part of the human body. And in the same way that your heart and your pancreas and your pain nerves can be affected, so can your brain. And it's that simple and straightforward. I'm really glad you brought that up because speaking just this is like obviously pure a purely anecdotal from my own experience of you know I was severely overweight I was a drug addict I was crippled with with anxiety depression I mean hopelessness I mean I go on and on with all the bad stuff that was happening in my life and when then when I started to exercise lose weight figure out a way to to cope with stress unlearn some of these you know toxic patterns that I had going on in my head and and turn my life around you know, completely overhaul my health, my life got a lot better overall. And I couldn't, I honestly couldn't connect the dots. And I mean, I was just like, all right, well, this makes sense. Like if I'm overweight, odds are I'm not going to feel as good about myself. Uh, you know, if I'm, you know, putting copious amounts of drugs in my system, it's going to crush my mental health. So this all makes sense as to why if I got rid of a lot of that stuff and, and formed new habits, like why I would feel better about myself. And I guess bringing it back full circle, I would say obviously this information is slightly newer, is newer when it, when it comes to, or maybe it's not as much talked about when it comes to you know, dealing with mental health. But I would say that most people understand that if they eat better and they move their body and they sleep more, then their life will probably get better. I think people struggle with with how because they're they're so overwhelmed or they have so far to go as far as their health journey, they they just don't even know where to start. So maybe like what are a few like simple things that could at least get the ball rolling for some people that are just feeling completely overwhelmed right now. And they're hearing this and they're like, oh, this all makes sense. But like, where do I start? I can definitely give some quick advice on that. But I want to start with the most important point. And the most important point is please do not buy into... So you're overwhelmed and stressed and depressed or anxious. And right now, the medical field is going to tell you, you've got a chemical imbalance and you need a pill because that's the easy intervention. I don't have time to be talking to you about diet and, and exercise and stress reduction. I don't have time for that. I'm a busy medical professional and I prescribe pills and you got a chemical imbalance and here's the prescription and just take your pill and that should solve the problem. We know from the outcome studies, I wish that was true. I wish that model worked. I wish it worked for even 70% of the people or 50% of the people who get that. It doesn't. At best, it works for 10 to 20% of the people who get that treatment. And everyone else is left suffering and struggling and just going downhill. So the first and foremost is you need to understand that the science no longer supports this model of, well, if you're overwhelmed and depressed and stressed, you've got chemical imbalance and you need a pill. And that's your simple problem. So instead, I do want you, if you're really overwhelmed and struggling, I want you to be able to get help from a medical professional who's going to be able to help you with this. 
Or maybe just get help from a family member or a, a friend or a coach or a personal trainer or somebody who can understand that you are vulnerable, you are burned out, you are exhausted, and it is going to be really, really hard for you to do much. And so they're going to be patient with you. They're going to be tolerant. They're going to understand that you are burned out. The uh, next thing I want to tell you is that your metabolism is shot. That's what it's telling us. And what that means is that your cells actually really don't have enough energy. They really, honestly, legitimately, literally do not have enough energy. So yeah, you feel like shit. And yeah, you don't have enough energy to go out and exercise. So you're going to feel that way because it's true. That's just the way it is in your cells. And nonetheless, I'm going to tell you as a compassionate medical professional, the way out of that hole that you're in is to fight and to figure out a way to do one of the strategies. And you can start with any of the strategies. So if your diet is off and you're not exercising at all because you don't have any energy and you're burned out and your sleep is off, and yeah, well, now that you mention it, I am smoking weed every night and I'm drinking a little too much because those are my only coping mechanisms. I don't know what else to do. Then I'm going to say you're in a hole. You're in a metabolic hole. And you got four areas that you can work on. Diet, exercise, sleep, and substance use. Pick one. All you got to do is pick one. Pick one of them that you think, maybe I could make some progress on that one right now. And it might mean prioritize sleep, or it might mean cut out some of the substances, or it might mean clean up the diet or whatever. But pick one, start doing it. That'll get you a little more ground. And then a few weeks from now or a couple months from now, try to go further with that one intervention if you still feel like you've got room to go, or add one of the next interventions. So if you've now gotten rid of the substances, but you haven't cleaned up your diet, See what you can do with your diet. Start making some small changes. Try to clean up your diet. Once you do those two things, my best guess is you're probably going to start having a little more energy, a little more confidence, and then maybe you can start an exercise plan. Once you start the exercise plan, you're going to have even more energy. Your cravings for junk food are going to start going down. Your cravings for using substances to cope with your stress are going to go down. So the other interventions are starting to get easier. You're regaining your mental health and your metabolic health, and now you're on your way. And that's the way it goes for a lot of people, one step at a time. Yeah, literally like one step at a time. And in like recovery and like the 12-step community, like one of the biggest terms is like one day at a time. It's like you literally have to just piece together like small wins over a period of time and, and add up. And I love the approach of just working on like one thing and whether that's overhauling your health with working with a personal trainer or getting your diet in check, maybe, you know, getting help for some substance use, you know, obviously going and talking to a mental health professional. And I think the one thing that you said that I think is important is just to, to stay true to yourself and, and make sure you're checking in with yourself to see how you're doing so that if you need to talk to somebody else or, or what have you, like you're able to kind of reach your hand out and, and ask, ask for help. 
So I guess in your opinion, like, and I kind of thought about bringing this up at the beginning, but there's, and we've touched on it. There's been so many quote unquote advances in the mental health community. I mean, I would say that people now, there's more people speaking up about their mental health than there ever have been before. There's more resources online. I think it's probably easier for most people to get access to treatment for mental health than it was decades ago. We talked about medication. And despite that, like you said, like things have gone the other way. Like you would think there would be like an inverse relationship between the amount of help and mental health cases. And really, it's just been completely like linear. What do you think is the path forward? Like, obviously, we've talked about addressing metabolic health, looking at lifestyle. But how can all this come together in a more multifaceted approach so that we're able to still continue to use medication where it's needed, but also have professionals talk about lifestyle more? I've been thinking long and hard about that for, for years. And in particular, over the last six years, since I've been working on developing this theory, and since I've been doing the work that I'm doing using dietary strategies to help people with chronic serious mental disorders recover, I believe the first thing that needs to happen is the scientific understanding. That once people, and that means researchers, clinicians, but also the general public, once people understand the science and the reasons, the exact reasons why somebody's having a panic attack, the exact reasons why somebody's not able to focus, and how those things relate to your metabolism and lifestyle factors, we can develop entirely new models of care. And I believe that those models of care should start with lifestyle in most people. Now, it doesn't mean that if somebody is having a first psychotic episode and they are a danger to themselves or others that we should not use medications. I think we absolutely should use medications because those are dangerous, life-threatening situations. But that is still a metabolic problem. We're not putting those people into a different category. The brain energy theory unifies all mental health, and it helps us understand why that person's brain is malfunctioning in the same way that it helps us understand why somebody with low-level depression or anxiety's brain is malfunctioning. But the reality is that science and evidence aren't enough to change a field. Logic isn't enough. There is tremendous stigma against people with mental illness. There is gross, horrible, unjust underfunding or lack of funding for research, for clinical care. I mean, in the United States, we are in crisis. Kids who are cutting themselves and trying to kill themselves are housed in emergency rooms because we don't have any hospital beds to send them to. Why is that? Because insurance companies don't pay enough for child and adolescent mental health hospitals to stay in business. The mental health hospitals lose money for every kid that's admitted. That's why we don't have hospital beds for these kids. That is a solvable problem, but it's not going to be solved, in my mind, without a grassroots movement. And I am convinced, based on this new scientific theory, that we need a grassroots movement to demand change, to improve care for people with mental illness. And if I may, I want to ask people to join our grassroots movement, and I want you to come to brainenergy.com and sign up and get involved, because we need all the help we can get, and 
we really want to change the mental health field. We want all of you and your friends and your family to be able to get this kind of treatment that offers the hope of healing, that offers treatments that are not toxic to your metabolism. But these are radical changes. And there are billion-dollar industries that are not going to want to change. They're, they're doing just fine, just like they are. And I can't blame them. If I was making a billion dollars from a drug, I probably wouldn't be too happy about Chris Palmer coming along <laughs> talking about lifestyle instead of my drug. But, uh, but we need change. And I'm, I'm determined to see it through. BrainEnergy.com. I will make sure to include the link to that in the show notes. So Dr. Palmer, thank you so much for coming on, being vulnerable, taking a chance, putting yourself out there with the hopes of helping to solve this insane mental health epidemic that we've been in and that's continuing to get worse. So if people want to learn more about you other than BrainEnergy.com, they want to buy your new book, they want to follow along on social media, where's the best place for them to do that? So you can do a lot of that through brainenergy.com, but you could also find me at chrispalmermd.com. So that's a website that's more specific to the research and the clinical work that I'm doing. So chrispalmermd.com. Amazing. I'll be sure to include the links to, to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that Dr. Palmer said about the difference between a mental state and a mental disorder. Maybe it was something that he said about the importance of paying attention to your lifestyle or some simple interventions that you can try before going on a medication to improve your mental health. Or maybe it was something that he just shared you know, towards the end of our conversation about what's the path forward and what can be done differently. Whatever the takeaway was, make sure to tag him, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.